Thank you for choosing Miniaturist of Baptist Church podcast. We hope you benefit from this message. If you'd like to learn more about Miniaturist of Baptist Church, please visit our website at miniaturistachurch.org. And the first conference, I represented Interim Pastor Ministries, which is the group that has sent me here to Minnetrista to be your intentional interim pastor. And at this conference with the Evangelical Free Church, there was about a thousand people from across the North Central District of the Evangelical Free Church in New Hope, Minnesota. And it was really kind of like a family reunion because for two years of COVID now, that they haven't been able to meet. This is the first time in three years that they were able to get together. And it was like a family reunion. Everybody was excited to be together for the first time after these two years of COVID. And we had some great speakers, but one of the things that really hit me, not only was it a privilege to be there, but a privilege to see the next generation coming up. So at one point, they acknowledged all the younger people who have been coming into the ministry this past year. And there is about 35 people that stepped forward to enter the ministry this past year, which gives me great hope, <laughs> play on words there, a great hope uh, about the future of Christ and his church. So, and then yesterday, Thursday, yesterday, Saturday, Friday and Saturday, Donna and Tony Hale and I, we went to the Equip Conference in Cedar Valley Church in uh, Bloomington. And there was about 3,000 people at this conference with the Assemblies of God. And uh, we had breakout sessions that we could go to. And again, I felt this great sense of privilege that I was a part of something that was alive. And at that conference, they announced that they had 108 younger people stepping forth, entering into works of ministry which is exciting, that Christ is on the move with his church, not only in America, but across the world. And then one of the breakout sessions that Don and I attended was how to bring a missions culture into a local church. And the one presenter there talked about his church and their church, which is a relatively younger church, maybe been in existence now for about 20 years, um, how they give about $15 million a year to the cause of taking the gospel around the world. So I was very, very blessed, privileged to be there. And for these next few weeks, I want to talk about what it means to be a privileged people. And so we've just come through our Easter season. We've just heard about these 40 days that Jesus has been appearing to his disciples and to others, over 500 different people in the 40-day period of time between uh, his resurrection from the grave and then to his ascension uh, to heaven. So the question that comes before us this morning is, how will it be different this time? How will it be different between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? How will we stay on the rail? How will we stay faithful and true? How will we be relevant to our neighbors and to our friends with the gospel, not only of good news, but of rest that he gives to us and promised to us? 
So this morning I would like you to follow along as I read from Isaiah. I'm not going to read the full chapter, but we're going to pick it up at verse 18. And uh, when we come to this chapter, I want you to think, again, the advantage of privilege. And we are hearing right now in our society that privilege is not a positive word. There's many people saying it's not right that you have, whether they call it white privilege or ethnic privilege, whatever it may be, it's not right that you have this privilege. But God has said from the beginning that he was going to have a peculiar people, a holy people, a faithful people to call his own that was going to be different than the nations. And so he sets apart a people that he calls his own and he gives us an advantage. And that advantage, Paul was asked the question, what advantage does a Jew have? And he says, much in any way, for they have been entrusted with the oracles of God, with the word of God. So we have an advantage when we take God's word and we begin to respond to God's word and God's message and God's invitation. He privileges us. He makes us different. And he does it so he can have a faithful people to call his own. So the prophet says in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your skins, skins, sins, <laughs> Lord forgive me, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, and now that's the question before us through this Easter season that we've had. Are we going to resist and rebel or are we going to yield and follow? But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So now, Father, I pray that you take your word and make the meaning clear to us through your Holy Spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 1, the first verse, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That one verse summarizes what was going on in the 8th century B.C., about 740 B.C. That one verse summarizes about 50 years of history in that one verse. Um, Isaiah, Uzziah, who had ruled for 52 years, dies. So if you take those 52 years and then the 50 years that are, there's 102 years of history in that one verse. Uh, uh, Uzziah became king of Judah when he was 16. Everything went well at the beginning. But then this little problem emerged. And this little problem was called pride. And from the pride that filled his heart, Uzziah was struck with leprosy. His son Jotham takes over. And after 16 years, he was faithful to God. He was a trustworthy servant. He was privileged. And he had the advantage 
of being faithful. But the people around him were not faithful. And it complicated Israel's history. Uzziah's grandson, King Ahaz, comes next. And he and Jezebel are known for worshiping other gods and for being very wicked and dark people. Josiah's great son was King Hezekiah. He started out right, but then changed and followed the practice of the Moabites, which involved the sacrificing and the killing of children. All of this is packed into that one verse, and as I mentioned, covers 50 years of, of, of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. This one verse speaks of the trajectory, of the drift, of what it means to be a peculiar people, to be a privileged people, to be a set-apart people. And that is the cause throughout all of history, whether it be the history of Israel or the history of the Christian church, or the story of our own lives. There's always this tendency, this propensity to drift and casually just kind of move away from the centrality of the things of God. Verse 3 mentions that even an ox knows its owner, and the donkey is barn. But Israel does not know God. They do not understand God or listen to God or His messengers. Verse 4, heavy guilt is present. Sons and daughters of God are now sons and daughters of evil. They are a wayward people with their backs towards God. Where's the turning point? When will things change? What was God saying then? And what is God saying now to us? Where are the turning points that we should be looking for in what it means to be <clears throat> a privileged and set-apart people for God's work. So I have four turning points for us to consider this morning. <clears throat> Number one, sometimes, and this you probably won't appreciate, so I'll do it and then I'll move on, but sometimes things get worse before they get better. Israel was at a crossroad. America today is at a crossroad. You yourself may be at a crossroad. Which way are we going to go? At some point you need to come to the place where you realize that you can't manage your way out of your own problems. That was probably the main turning point of the last church that I served in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Every, everyone in that church was concerned about the survivability of their church. Had a long history, started in the 1900s, early 1906. And they were at a precipice fall part of were they going to survive as a church? And one point, the Holy Spirit spoke. And I went to each one of the elders of the church and I said, you know what the difficulty is? You're trying to manage your way out of your problems rather than calling out to God and say, I need you front and center in my life. And that moment, I went to each one of the elders personally I got down on my knees and I prayed with each one of them. And we repented together about trying to manage our way forward rather than having a clear, compelling vision of what God has called us to be and do. 
And that church today is thriving. It is growing. It is making a phenomenal impact in this community today. And it happened when they said, we can't manage our way out of our problems. We need God. And so most problems are too big and our resources are too small. This is a point where, where as an individual or as a nation or as a congregation, we either acknowledge God or we abandon Him. What should we do? On our own? Are things going to get better? Or are they going to get worse? And with Christ, with God at the head of our lives, will things get better? Or will things get worse? The second turning point, sometimes we're not honest with our situation. In verses 5 and 6, Israel is compared to a person who has been beaten and brutalized. From the sole of the foot to the crown of the head, there is no wholeness in this person. From this beating, there are cuts and wounds that refuse to be pressed together and to be healed. The pain doesn't stop. Treatment doesn't work. Medicine has no effect. Verse 7, the homeland is compared to a wasteland. Cities burn. Invaders swarm and pillage the land. So this is maybe really a picture of where we are in every major city in America today. Minneapolis is no exception. Where you see a homeless situation, and it's really not a homeless situation. There isn't a need for homes. The need is for wholeness. And so there's four things, and I worked with the inner city of Milwaukee for over 20 years. We never found that homelessness was the problem. The problem usually had to deal with drug and alcohol. The problem usually had to deal with, with mental health issues. It usually had to deal with broken relationships in the home and in the individual. And then the fourth reason there was homelessness because there was adverse circumstances in a person's life. They either got over their heads in debt, they had a job that they lost, they had a sickness that came into their life. And that one part of, of adverse circumstances is where we could really help a person in the ministry that we did at the Milwaukee Outreach Center. But what could we do for somebody who persisted in drug and alcohol? What could we do for somebody who had mental health issues that really required acute professional care? What should we do? What should we do? Sometimes we have to be honest. There was the whole thing that that young man in the pig pen he finally became honest with himself. And he said, the servants of my father's house have it better than this. I know what I'm going to do. And he rehearses. But in that rehearsal, he never thought that he would ever again be restored as a son to the father. But God had something better, something such much better than his own plan. So sometimes... We have to be honest with our situations. Verse 8, the nation's abandoning of God is compared to a sukkah, a booth, or a tent left behind in a field during the time of battle. 
One of the festivals of Israel was the festival of booths. It's a hard word for me to say. Booths. You know, booths? Not booths, booths. And they would go out and they would cut down some branches and they would make a little shelter and they would remind themselves of God's faithfulness to their ancestors in the wilderness. It was kind of like an Old Testament camping trip. And they would set up these sukkahs, these little temporary shelters. And this image in verse 8 mentions that word sukkah, a booth or a tent. It doesn't stand a chance of survival uh, against an army, against oppositions. And like a watchman's hut, it is no match for the boots of the enemy. Verse 9 compares the moral condition of the nation to Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities of the plain were judged and destroyed because of their immorality and their sexual perversion. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We have this devolving of societies. I think of my hometown, San Francisco. It used to be a destination place for tourists. It's one of the most picturesque cities that you would ever want to visit in the world. Today, it is a blighted city. Today, it is a city that tourists don't want to go to. Today, it is a city that has devolved. Verse 9 compares the moral condition to Sodom and Gomorrah. There are no survivors from that city of sexual perversion. This verse mentions that only a remnant, a small part of the whole, was listening to God's instruction concerning morality and sexuality. As a whole, they had abandoned God. They had left the right path. They had lost their way. Those who were once privileged, blessed by God, are now far from God. At this point, at this crossroad, at this turning point, they were not honest with themselves and with their situation. At this point, you're probably wondering, when are things going to get better, Will? When are we going to get to the real good stuff? When are we going to get to the stuff that will make us comfortable and peaceful and restful? And on the whole, we prefer a quick fix. We prefer a simple and speedy answer. We prefer a painless solution. And congregations are no different than that. There's many times that I've done this interim work that somebody will say to me, well, how soon before we get to a regular pastor? <laughs> and what they're saying in the question and asking in the question is, how soon before the pain will stop and we can get back to normal? And I don't know if you want to get back to normal. I think what you want is to get back into the center of God's will for your lives and for this congregation. Amen? That's what you want. And so this leads me to my third turning point. Remember I said I was going to have four. Sometimes we confuse religion with righteousness. Israel was very religious, but they weren't very righteous. Religion has both interior and exterior aspects to it. Becoming religious is when the exterior life 
the outward appearance is more important than the interior life of knowing God. So sometimes when we are religious, we focus on externalities. Where this is at, or where that is at. You have to remember that in the Old Testament, a Levite could only serve until he was age 50. And the reason was, butchering animals for the sacrifice was strenuous work. Can you imagine that a bull would be brought, I don't know, 1,500 pounds is what a bull weighs? And you have to take that saw out and you have to cut it all up. You have to bleed the animal, you have to skin the animal, bring the animal. It was a very religious thing to do in the Old Testament ceremonial law. It was all externalities. But righteousness is something that is on the inside. God became exhausted by Israel's religious activities, verses 11 through 14. God found no pleasure in the unending and empty sacrifices of the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. That's what the verse tells us. One festival after another, one new moon after another, one more solemn assembly and Sabbath day convocation had become a burden to God and exhausted his patience. From the beginning, God said, You shall be holy, for I am the Lord your God, am holy. So the turning point in our life is, are we here for religious purposes, for externalities, for that which is outward focused, really what it is inwardly focused? Or are we here to be God's privileged, peculiar, righteous, faithful, anointed people? Verse 15, perhaps a prayer meeting will fix everything. Prayer without holiness is just another religious activity. Verse 15 says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are filled with blood. The difference between religious and righteous is religion starts with duty, Whereas righteousness starts with a relationship. Big difference. An obligation or is it a relationship? Do I love my wife out of obligation or do I love my wife out of my relationship with her? And for me, it's not an obligation, it's not a duty to love my wife. And the same way in following Jesus. It's not a duty it's not an obligation. It comes from a relationship, a walking with Him as a member of the fellowship of the burning hearts, like the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Righteousness means being in a right relationship. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the saving power of God for everyone who has faith. The Jew first, but also the Greek, because here is revealed God's way of righting wrong. That's the New English Bible. God, righteousness is God's way of righting wrong. 
And so he calls us to a relationship. And my final turning point is this. Sometimes we need to do the hardest thing first. Verse 16 says, wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Put away evil from God's sight. Stop doing evil. Now, that's a tall order. How can we stop doing something that we inherently want to do wrong because of our sinful nature? Verse 17 has five imperatives. Learn to do good. That's number one. So can I learn to do good? Well, the Bible gives me a command to do it. Then it must be possible that I can do it. He wouldn't ask me to do something that I wasn't capable of doing. So there is the potential to learn to do good. It's interesting right now in our culture, there is a battle going on for the minds of children. And this battle involves teaching them things that are evil. And from the days that we had our family, that we taught them in the nursery, and then in the Sunday school, and in the pioneer clubs, and in the youth ministry, what it meant to be a Christ follower. It's interesting today, in our culture, this is grabbing of the hearts and minds of children and saying they are the responsibility of the state. Not so. It's the responsibility of mom and dad. It is the opportunity of the church to be able to influence children for good. So the invitation is there, the five imperatives. Learn to do good. Number two, seek justice. Teach violent people. Can you imagine taking a violent person and the scripture says, teach them. Now, if that wasn't doable, God would never ask us to do it. And it is possible for the most unlikely violent person, the person that was responsible for the murder of Stephen, becomes the spokesman for the Christian church around the world. His name was Paul, otherwise known as Saul. Was it possible? Absolutely. After Saul was converted, he goes into the, the, the desert. He goes into the backside over by Turkey. And God teaches him what the gospel is. The other imperative, he says, teach violent people, do justice for the orphan, defend the widow. So we never just have this good news for ourselves in the four walls of a building. The good news is for those who are disenfranchised, those who are disadvantaged, those who are marginalized. And we have to ask ourselves the question, how are we engaging with the orphan? How are we engaging with the widow? How are we engaging with violent people? How do we seek justice? How do we do good? Those are questions that define us in the, in the ways that we answer them. So, how do you wash yourself so you're clean in God's sight? These two verses point to a very old-fashioned word 
which is at the center of every good story, every good plot, has the theme of redemption to it. Redemption resolves the plot. This provides a way of escape when there is no sign of hope or any sign of a way forward. Verses 18 and 19 are the crossroad. This is where we began. Where everything comes together. God in His mercy gives us an invitation. Come now, says the Lord, for us to decide if your sins are deep purple, they will become like snow. If they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. That's the World Hope Translation. Come now. It's now, says the Lord. God promises to send us a Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, a Messiah, who we celebrated at Easter, who would make us righteous. Come now. Not tomorrow, or next week, or next month. Now. Now when you hear His voice, the Scripture says, Do not harden your hearts as Israel did. Verse 19 contains one of the biggest ifs in the Bible. If you are willing and you listen, you'll enjoy the goodness of the land. That's the privilege. That's the advantage. That's the uptick. That's what it means to be holy. The big if in 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, and I'll conclude with this, if we say we have no sin. We deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. Say it with me. All. Once more. All unrighteousness. If you're willing. I think one of the most important signs on the highway is that sign that says yield. Because if you don't, it's a very complicated situation afterwards. Especially if somebody is in that lane and you're not going to yield to them. Especially if it's a semi-truck and you're driving a Volkswagen. You know, If you are willing, Jesus invites us saying, take my yoke upon you. Huh? We heard that. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Wow. What a privilege. What an advantage. What a wonderful way to be God's peculiar people. Father, I pray that you take these words to our hearts. I pray, God, where there is reluctance, that you will find in us a yielded people. And Lord, just as you had a wonderful covenant for your people Israel, and yet they failed, failed in being faithful. And Lord, you've given us a new covenant, but yet, Lord, you still give us, come now, let us reason together. And so, Father, I pray that you would find in us a yielded people, that we will be sensitive to not only hearing your voice, but following in your footsteps. 
I pray these things. And if there's anyone here who has not yielded their lives to your ownership, to your lordship, that they will do it at this moment. You said, now. And if that's you, you would just do it in your heart right now and say, now, Lord, I want my life to be yielded to you. And if there's any here who's heard your voice this morning, and they say, you know, I'm really religious, but I don't have a good relationship with you. Would you in your heart say, Lord, teach me to have a good relationship with you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Thank you for listening to our podcast. Minnetrista Baptist Church is a community of Christ followers who value preaching and teaching scripture, biblical obedience, community, prayer, and evangelism. If you'd like to learn more about Minnetrista Baptist Church, please visit our website at minnetristachurch.org and come by for a Sunday morning service. We'd love to meet you.